Welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. UK's only Things Union show, produced for your downloadable digital delight. And appreciation. In this week's episode, lockdown may be loosening, but we still need to work safely with COVID. The lowdown on a new publication to help us do just that. Plus, the fallout from the Supreme Court's ruling that Uber drivers are workers and not self employed. Hello, hello, hello. You are very welcome to this episode of Union Jews, the UK's only all things union podcast. I'm Simon Sapper and what a week, what a week. As lockdown loosens, we still have a need to work safely with COVID and Andrea Oates from the Labour Research Department will be here to tell us about the new publication on just that that she's written. We have, of course, the Supreme Court ruling that said that Uber drivers are workers and not self-employed. And Mel Sims, with her thought for the week, will put that into context for us. And then we'll have a bit of a chat, I guess, about what it means in practice. That's not the only story. Of course, and Josiah Mortimer will be here with his regular radical roundup. And in addition to the stories that Josiah pulls out for us, we'll be taking a look at trouble on the buses in London and Manchester and a warning from education unions about the Prime Minister's plans for a return to school. Well, let's get straight into the story of the moment, the issue of the day. That is the Supreme Court ruling that Uber drivers are workers and not self-employed, thereby entitling them to a whole suite of basic employment rights. Not as good as if they've been categorised as employees, of course, but one step at a time, I guess. Now, this was a culmination of a process that's been going on for about five years. This is, I think, the fourth time that an original decision to grant Uber drivers worker status has been appealed, and the appeal's been lost, been rejected. So, Let's put that into context. Here's Mel Sims with her Thought for the Week. This week, I've been thinking about how labour law intersects with wider collective bargaining, with two really important cases being decided this week. The first was the UK Supreme Court decision uh, that confirmed that Uber drivers are classified as workers. And the other is Tuesday's case in the Netherlands, which confirms that Deliveroo riders are employees. And the cases show how this point of law has now been tested in several jurisdictions that have really very different approaches to labour law, but with similar outcomes. So when asked to test the cases of on-demand workers, many courts have decided that conventional employment rights do apply, at least to some extent. Important in both of the cases was a decision about how much scope there is to negotiate the terms and conditions of work. So the Netherlands case ruled that the non-negotiability of terms and conditions was a strong rationale for considering riders to be workers. You either work for that rate of pay or you don't, unlike genuine contractors who can negotiate pay and other terms and conditions. And although Deliveroo riders technically have the right to decide when to work, more off, more work is offered to those who make themselves available at a particular time. 
But for me, one of the really important differences between the two cases was that the Dutch Deliveroo case asked for a second ruling. So the FNV, which is the Dutch Union Federation, also asked the court to rule on whether the collective agreement for the transport sector applied now that they'd been established to be workers. And the court ruled that it does, including issues around pensions, for example. So the Dutch judgment has potential to be far more wide reaching for the business model of these companies than the equivalent UK case, although it is important to note that there are further avenues for the company to appeal. The case is really put into context for me how important it is to have multiple institutions regulating work and employment. We can't rely only on the law. In the UK, worker status is important, but it only grants very minimal employment rights. The right to be covered by a collective agreement has potential to be much more extensive, especially if it's negotiated with unions at sectoral level, as it is in the Netherlands. So the importance of the institutions that go beyond labour law are really brought into sharp focus between the two cases, and they really show the opportunities presented by collective bargaining when it's used in conjunction with legal regulation. Thanks for that, Mel. And of course, many congratulations to Steve Garrelick, regional organiser of the GMB, and of course, Yassine Naslam and James Farah of the IWGB Union. A great, a great victory, no doubt at all about it. Now, there's been lots written about this uh, online, in the news media, and all the rest of it. I don't, you know, I don't intend to duplicate what's been done there, except to say that the best by far the best analysis of this, giving the historical context, the legal context, the political context, has been written by Calvin Allen, who tweets at played out scenes or one word. His summary of this court ruling, where it's come from, where it's going to go next, is masterful, quite simply masterful. I'm very happy to give it a plug. And you'll find a link to Calvin's piece on the blog post that accompanies this podcast, which you'll find over on the makesyouthink.com site. The other thing to point out is that, of course, Uber are not kind of tame pussycats. They're not the sort of firm to just say, oh, okay, we lost in court, we'll go away. The fact that this was appealed about three times before the final Supreme Court ruling demonstrates that, as does the fact, let us not forget, that Uber were part of the group that stumped up over $200 million to push through a thing called Proposition 22 in California at the end of last year. Proposition 22 basically makes it an almost impossibility for Uber drivers to organise collectively and to negotiate on their pay and terms and conditions. And there was a previous podcast in the Union Due series about Proposition 22, which you may find useful and relevant and informative. And you'll find the link to that, of course, in the companion blog post as well. And a couple of the issues I particularly want to draw out were those that Mel flagged as well. One of the key issues the Supreme Court took into account in determining its ruling was the fact that Uber drivers didn't have the right, the ability to negotiate over their terms and conditions. Well, that's a perfect example of what has been called one-way flexibility in employment contracts. There are recommendations that are still with government to implement that would seriously rebalance one-way lopsided flexibility to make it a much more even playing field. They've been out to consultation. There's a kind of political with a small p consensus across unions and employers and academics that these, this is the right way to go. There would seem to be no real reason why we can't move forward and introduce these regulations, which would make a big difference. And the second is the notion of sectoral bargaining. Now, there's a long-established, well-populated uh, strand of thought about sector level bargaining and 
how it might work, how it could work, how, how it should work, according to some enthusiasts for it. The idea that each industrial sector has a tripartite structure that talks about basic terms and conditions, basic levels of pay, even career progression, training, future proofing the, the industry. The problems uh, are that have we got sufficiently robust organizations to actually sit around the table on this? Are the employers organizations strong enough? Are sectors of the economy where there are low levels of unionization of the unions strong enough? What would the terms of reference be? What would the powers be? What would the unintended consequences be? An, an interesting and worthwhile and relevant debate, especially as they are very well established, as we can see from the FNV's position uh, on mainland Europe. But the one thing we can say with, with certainty is that sort of structure is not going to happen anytime soon in the UK, which is why, as Steve Garrelick of the GMB said very clearly, the court case is great. The Supreme Court ruling is really, really important, but it's what workers themselves achieve through collective organisation and collective voice that really makes the difference. Well, as we heard from the Prime Minister yesterday, Lockdown may be easing, but there's a long way to go yet before we're out of the woods. The problem, the threat, the dangers, the restrictions of the pandemic. And therefore, it's particularly pertinent that the Labour Research Department have just published a new publication, Working Safely with COVID. The author, Andrea Oates, is my special guest on this week's episode. Uh, the Labour Research Department has been around for over 100 years, established in 1912. And in 1912, the constitution of the organisation was very clear. The Labour Research Department exists to cooperate with Labour, socialist and cooperative movements in promoting and carrying out research into problems of importance to Labour, to supply information and to issue publications. Now, that was written in 1912. More recently, there's a testimonial which I'm happy to quote from the Labour Research Department's website, which is lrd.org.uk. If our trade union branch could affiliate to one organisation, it would be the LRD. The information provided in LRD publications are indispensable tools for workplace reps to know their own and members' rights. And that's uh, written by Paul Cruz, Secretary of the Unite Westminster branch. And I would absolutely endorse Paul's sentiments. LRD publications are the bee's knees, the, the absolute benchmark. Invaluable is the right word to describe them. So the overview of what workplace reps need to know, can do and are entitled to do about COVID is clearly dealing with the issue of the moment. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. Andrea Oates, welcome to the Union Jews podcast. Thanks very much for spending some time with us. Listeners, I should add that Andrea is the author of a new Labour Research Department publication, Working Safely with COVID-19. And I suppose the first question, Andrea, is you know, there's been lots and lots and lots, obviously, written about COVID and the pandemic and, and about the trade union response to it. So what's the what's the USP? What's the particular need or purpose of, of this booklet that you've written? So the booklet, I think, brings together guidance and advice from trade unions across the TUC affiliates um, and also guidance from the TUC itself and organisations like the Hazards Campaign that's been um, campaigning for better safety throughout the pandemic, as have the unions. So I suppose it's kind of bringing together all that information for union reps to be able to, be able to see you know, maybe they normally just look at their own union guidance, but it's trying to bring together 
some practical examples for reps in terms of what union reps have been able to do in their workplaces, you know, to keep them and their colleagues safe. Yeah, I suppose there's been a lot written about COVID, but this is very much from a union perspective, a very practical focus aimed aimed clearly at reps, which is what LRD publications normally do. I think the other thing to say is just that things are constantly developing and this booklet comes out at a time when the TUC has been calling on the government to update its own guidance published by the business department. So the TUC is saying, you know, that those rules need updating and um, some of their demands are included in, our, in the LRD booklet. And so although it the booklet refers to the official guidance from the health and safety executive and Bayes, the business department. It is very much from a trade union perspective. And one of the important things in there is, you know, makes clear that the union approaches to work through a hierarchy of prevention and control to deal with the risks from, from COVID. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, as you would expect from an LRD publication, and, and you know, and everyone on this show knows I'm a big, a big fan, it, it is relentlessly practical. And just in that overview you've given us, Andrea, two, two things immediately come to come to my mind. The first is this whole notion of dynamic risk assessment. You know, you need a, a risk assessment that uh, regime that keeps pace with the changes of the risk you are you are assessing. You know, that's that's not a new concept. I mean, unions all the way through have had to deal with things that don't stay the same and have had to work out how to stay stay safe. And the, the second the second thing is is as you have said, the hierarchy. If you can't remove the risk, you have to try and mitigate it. And there are some cases, aren't there? And I don't, you know, 60% of the population is still going to work each day. But there are some cases, aren't there, where there's a real challenge in mitigation. And uh, I wondered what case studies you've been able to draw on. I mean, I'm thinking particularly of, say, bus drivers who have suffered, occupationally have suffered terribly during during the pandemic, but nevertheless have been very innovative in, in some of the things they've been doing. Yeah, again, I think some of the union guidance is, you know, it's very practical. So on dynamic risk assessment, the TSA Transport Union, you know, they give a very practical example of where um, the members check in that passengers have got the, you know, the correct fare on the train, you know, and they're, they're confronted by a carriage full of passengers that would mean that they wouldn't be able to maintain social distancing rules. And so they, you know, say that at that point, you know, members should be able to, not carry out that that work without recrimination and they refer to the legal protections that that, that members have got or work, workers have got under section 44 of the employment rights act which means that basically you don't have to put yourself at serious imminent danger all the way through the booklet there's examples of kind of what unions are doing from national to workplace level and there are some challenges i think for i, I mean i suppose just talking about that hierarchy you know, the most important thing is to, you know, eliminate the risk. Of, so, you know, the, the government advice is work at home if you can. But as you said, there's lots of people going to, to work and, and the unions have been, you know, very actively trying to get non-essential workplaces closed down with pay protected. So people aren't going into work if they, if they don't need to. You know, unions have seen employers pressurising workers to go back into the, you know, go back into the workplace when they could, you know, they could be working at home. The other massive area is around sick pay. So, you know, again, eliminate the risk by 
making sure that people who should who who are sick or who should be self-isolating got the financial support to not feel that they've got to go to work and and have that choice in terms of if if your option is that you don't get any statutory sick pay there's lots of particularly low-paid women workers don't earn enough to be eligible for statutory sick pay or if all you're getting is statutory sick pay of £96 a week, you know, that that's not enough to live on. So there's a big union campaign around trying to make sure that workers have access to decent sick pay. And there's been, you know, examples in the booklet of where unions have, have negotiated that, you know, kind of at national or workplace level to make sure that, you know, people get proper occupational sick pay if they're forced to um, self-isolate. I mean, in terms of some of the case studies that are highlighted, you know, one of the things, as you say, there's lots of essential workers still going to work. They've been very active on um, London buses, particularly Unite, and one of their reps, Mo Mania, was recognised as a, a kind of unsung hero for the work that he's done around, you know, trying to get buses safer. Um, so initially they were getting the the um, front doors of London buses closed and sealing, the, you know, making sure that the drivers' cabs were properly sealed. So in November... Unite announced a victory where they've got proper ventilation put into London buses so so that air entering the driver's sealed cabs comes directly from the outside and doesn't pass pass through the um, passenger area of the bus. And I think ventilation in general, unions are calling I think doctors in Unite, which is the sort of medics bit of, of the Unite General Union. Now, they've been calling for a while, along with the Hazards campaign, have been very active in this area, and Hazards magazine, you know, calling for much more attention to be paid to aerosol transmission and to and to getting workplaces properly ventilated. So I think we've, con- you know, there's been a focus on droplet transmission and contact transmission, and so all the kind of cleaning and hygiene measures and social distancing, which are all important, but but also. Unions are arguing that we need to be paying much more attention or employers need to be paying much more attention to ventilation. For example, PCS union, civil service union, they've been very active on, you know, calling for organisations like the Health and Safety Executive to update its guidance, you know, at national level. But also in the workplace, they've got agreement in the Department for Work and Pensions and the Tax Office. Office and DEFRA, um, Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Department and the Welsh Government, that they will follow a set of guidelines produced by the Federation of European Heating, Ventilation and Air Conditioning Associations in terms of improving ventilation in workplaces. I mean, there are a lot of challenges. I think one of the other things that the booklet looks at is travelling to and from work, which perhaps, you know, although unions have negotiated safe travel to and from work that's become a big issue you know and the transport unions have been reporting that in this lockdown there's, there's been much higher usage of public transport and in some some union branches like I'm just thinking about Unison at the Nottingham University Hospitals Trust I think they were one of the union branches where they've negotiated taxis for people to get to work. I mean, I think in that example, it was because the you know the bus services had kind of stopped running. But it, in other places, one of the banks, you know, will pay for taxis if people are unable to travel by public transport because concerns around them being infected um, on their way to work. 
you can you can see the issues. I mean, we're talking about dynamic risk assessment, dynamic situation, and you can see how all these issues interact and interrelate with each other. You know, the you know sick pay being unavailable to lots of lots of people and if it is available being not enough to live on the fact that ventilation is now a key part of of the mitigation campaign we we kind of we kind of know these things but what's wonderful is uh, about the booklet is, is here is here are examples of how unions have been able to achieve real wins and make real progress in in terms of not just protecting their members but protecting the public as well uh, and that practical aspect is obviously important um, i suppose the role of safety reps in all this is particularly important not just because of the sec- section 44 issue you mentioned andrea but of course because they have the, the knowledge and the responsibility about work design and workplace design but they're just part of the the kind of safety community and i wondered uh, what evidence and what details you've been able to uncover for the booklet about what the hse the health and safety executive has been doing because it seems to me that there's been I can't think of any workplaces where an HSC inspector has gone in and said, there's inappropriate ventilation here. It's not safe. Close it down. I just, and maybe I'm just not looking in the right place, but what's, what's that part of the landscape looking like to you? There's been lots of criticism from the unions. And I think increasingly, you know, the kind of, health and safety establishment if you want to call them that you know kind of the national media has has started to question the lack of enforcement that the health and safety executive has been doing around covid so early on in the pandemic the hse issued a joint statement with the tuc and cbi and said that where it identified employers who weren't taking action to with Public Health England guidance to control the risks of coronavirus, it, it would consider taking action to improve the control of workplace risk. But there's been lots of criticism about its lack of enforcement action. I mean, fairly early on in May last year, Boris Johnson announced an additional 14 million would be available to, to the HSE to carry out spot checks, but you know, prospect. Specialist Union, who represents um, HSC inspectors, pointed out that that was just 10% of the real terms cuts that the HSC had experienced wow. over the past decade. So, Gosh, I mean, I mean that really know, puts it into context, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, unions have been arguing for more resources for the HSC for a long time. You know, that, that they've been kind of really badly hit by funding cuts. And I think, again, Prospect said there's now more MPs than there are HSE inspectors. Oh, goodness gracious. Um, That's crazy. uh, But even so, you know, there's still questions about the approach that the HSE has taken. So, for example, in January, the Observer newspaper found that the HSE haven't prosecuted any companies for breaches of COVID-related health and safety law, but also they've not issued any enforcement notices to companies for COVID safety breaches since the country went into the latest lockdown. And that was despite being contacted almost 3,000 times about workplace safety issues between the 6th and the 14th of January. And, you know, unions and the TUC have been calling again and again, you know, for more inspections and saying that it's been too little enforcement. It, uh, yeah, so there's a clear need for more enforcement of, of health and safety, but it's kind of part of a bigger pattern of deregulation that's been going on. Yeah, I mean, and and listeners, unless you're directly involved in this, you may not be aware of this, but actually a government plan to rationalise labour market enforcement is well underway. And there is a plan to merge the enforcement bodies. So 
so the the gang masters licensing authority for example bits of hmrc and and health and safety as well and it's, it's unclear how exactly this new kind of super enforcement agency will work but if it's if it's based on the funding model that andrea you've just described then it, you know it's not it's not looking good uh, we could go on for a whole episode on that i suspect but but andrea of course if we look at the longer term and the longer term impact of COVID, it seems that it's kind of going to be with us for some time, even if the infection rates fall, even if the vaccination rate, rates continue to rise. There's, there's, there's long COVID, which we, we don't know too much about, but are learning more about. But there's also the view that kind of COVID is going to be knocking around like the flu is for for years, perhaps kind of perhaps forever. And I wondered what evidence you saw of unions taking that into account in, in terms of the stuff they're doing. And also, of course, once we get back to some sort of normality, presumably there are tons and tons and tons of issues that were unresolved before the pandemic and are still unresolved. So let's start off with long COVID. Yes, um, I yeah, so. so I think it's obviously the vaccination isn't a silver bullet and I think COVID is going to be, well, I, I mean, there's a campaign that unions, um, that you, some unions are backing, um, some Labour MPs are backing the, the sort of zero COVID campaign, which is, you know, arguing for stricter lockdown and, and other measures to sort of drive down infections to a very low level. Um, and then to, you know, have a functioning test trace, you know, find test trace, isolate support system. So what what that campaign is calling for is kind of not living alongside COVID, but bringing in the sort of measures that New Zealand and Vietnam and Taiwan have brought in. And they've seen a handful of deaths, whereas we've seen, you know, I was going to say... 120,000 yeah, at times yeah, speaking. I was going to say 100,000, but it, yeah, it, it, you know, and I was just listening to something on the radio this morning, the more or less programme with Tim Harford, where they think if, even that's an underestimate. So I think that, you know, there's a campaign to kind of, you know, for the government to take a different approach so that we don't have to live alongside COVID. And, and that's what's, you know, that's what's happened in other countries where they've kind of gone in very hard and very early and had really much stricter controls in terms of lockdowns and, and what's happened in terms of international travel than we've have had. I think with long COVID, that's something that, you know, unions are, are, are looking at. And again, work, you know, workplace reps have got a vital role there in negotiating protection for workers with long COVID because, you know, they need decent sick pay. Some people, minority people are, are, are still up for weeks, and in some cases, months later, and they need, need to be protected. And, you know, obviously that's a role for unions to be negotiating again at, at national and um, workplace level. Paul Novak at the TUC described it as a, a kind of, you know, the one silver lining in this terrible situation is that people are seeing the value of, of and joining unions and some unions have seen their membership levels increase mm. and also their, you know, activism increase in terms of the, you know, members signing up as health and safety reps. So I think that's a positive because as we've just discussed, the HSE is just not, you know, you can't rely on the HSE for sort of enforcing standards, but safety reps and unions make workplaces safer. You know, there's academic evidence to show the union effect that the TUC have published and, and the fact that, that, that union workplaces are safer workplaces. And 
Yes, and, and, you know, as well as COVID not going away anytime soon, all those other health and safety problems that workers face, so exposure to chemicals, musculoskeletal disorders, there was also, you know, there'd also been a massive increase in stress and anxiety and depression even before the pandemic. There's all those issues that, that unions and safety reps are still going to be dealing with on top of COVID. You know, and some of that is around the sort of deregulation that's gone on, the lack of enforcement. Going back to ventilation, you know, we've got laws that say that workplaces should be properly ventilated. We shouldn't have poorly ventilated workplaces, but COVID's kind of exposed the extensive kind of occupational health and safety issues. And as I said, the, the, the one kind of silver lining is that there's going to be more trade unionism, more trade unionism and more safety reps in workplaces to to be tackling those problems and keeping their workmates safe and and, and thank heavens for that for that for that silver lining andrea thanks so much for for walking us through the, the booklet and highlighting all the good work that the unions are doing on this multifaceted dynamic issue if if unions and their branches are affiliated to the LRD, they'll get a copy of the booklet automatically. But if they're not, how can they get hold of, of this publication? Okay, well, probably the best thing is to go to LRD's website, www.lrd.org.uk. And I think you, there's a bit of a sneak preview of the part of the booklet on there. The, the, the more you order, the you know the price of the booklet comes down per copy. So um, you can find out all the information about it there. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that. I, I do think that when you see the the landscape that Andrea has set out in that LRD publication, Working Safely with COVID, you get a really good kind of snapshot of how, about how there are so many different facets to this, how all the bits kind of fit together, the industrial, the environmental, the political, whether it's safety or whether it's mainstream negotiating. It, they, it's such a such a constellation of issues but it does show why we need a transformational solution a transformational approach to quote build back better and why trade unions are at the center of that process if that process is to have any real chance of success and longevity the other thing to point out is that it's not just the LRD doing great work on this. TUC, of course, is doing great work on it as well, but also the Greater Manchester Hazard Centre, gmhazards.org.uk. Their publications are really bang on, really useful, really practically orientated as well. So well worth a visit to their site too. Now it's time to welcome Josiah Mortimer for his weekly Radical Roundup. What have you got for us this time, Josiah? Thanks, Simon. First up, agency workers used by Amazon in the UK have been left in the lurch with zero hours contracts, hundreds of pounds in unpaid wages and shifts cancelled at the last minute, according to an investigation by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Many Amazon workers said they struggled to pay bills and fell into debt because the agencies they were employed by had failed to pay their wages correctly or on time. One described trying to get the wages she was owed as a nightmare. Thousands of jobs offered by the agency ADECO were on zero-hours contracts, while PMP recruitment offered minimum hours contracts, which despite the name didn't guarantee weekly or monthly hours, in breach of Amazon's stated policies not to use zero-hours contracts. An analysis by the Bureau found that in many places, people had little choice but to take these jobs. In West Lothian, 58% of all job ads were for Amazon, while in places such as Aberdeenshire and Port Talbot, warehouse jobs at Amazon made up over a third of all vacancies in the run-up to Christmas. 
Andy McDonald, the Shadow Secretary of State for Employment Rights, said the government is presiding over a return to Dickensian working conditions. Next up, another round of strikes by British gas workers ends on Tuesday, with more strikes lined up after the company refused to take fire and rehire schemes off the table. About 7,000 British gas engineers have downed tools for four days until this Tuesday over the company's plan to sack them all and rehire them on worse terms and conditions. GMB says the talks require the company to drop its fire and rehire plan if a deal is to be possible. After 18 days of strikes, more than 210,000 homes are in a backlog for repairs and 250,000 planned annual service visits have been axed. Next, the Fire Brigade Union has responded to Keir Starmer's keynote and new chapter for Britain speech, which set out some of his agenda last week. Matt Rack, the FBU's General Secretary, said Keir Starmer was right to call out the Tories' failed ideology. But he said it was frustrating that Labour hadn't consistently challenged the government. The union leader added that Labour had too often given the Tories a free pass for failing to plan for and manage a pandemic, and he called for radical policies to solve the crisis. Now... More than 650 Rolls-Royce jobs have been safeguarded from compulsory redundancies for at least five years after Unite secured agreements at the company's plants in Inchinen, Renfrewshire and Anstey in Coventry. As well as safeguarding jobs, two of the agreements state that Unite and Rolls-Royce will work together to bring new work to the site, including addressing climate change and developing green technologies. And last up, the TUC has intervened in a row over the appointment of a new General Secretary of the Influential Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD. Francis O'Grady has urged the Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab not to support the Australian candidate, Matthias Cormann, the former Australian Finance Minister who's being touted to take the role. Cormann is seen as an anti-union candidate for the role and has a reputation for defending Australia's mining interests as well as opposing the climate agenda. Francis O'Grady said Cormann's appointment would set back the fight against poverty and the climate crisis, adding that it was time for a woman to take on the leadership of the organisation. That's all from this week's Radical Roundup in the Union Jews podcast. Find the full Radical Roundup on leftfootforward.org. Thanks, Josiah. Josiah reported on attempts over here in the UK, but if you look across to the US, not one single Amazon site is unionised, and that's because the company have gone in for some really heavy-duty union-busting tactics. And what's in the news very much at the moment is a union recognition ballot taking place in a small town of Bessemer in Alabama. And there are 5,800 employees in the Amazon warehouse there. And they are being balloted on whether or not they wish to be represented by the retail, wholesale and department store union, RWDSU. Now, although pay at the warehouse is more than double Alabama's minimum wage, which at $7.25 an hour is very much on the low side of US minimum wage levels. The shifts are long, 10 hours long, only two 30-minute breaks. Um, The Guardian ran an article which in turn quoted the New York Times, which in turn reported the words of one pro-union worker that she hoped recognition would lead to a better break for lunch and the freedom to stretch or go to the toilet without falling behind on her daily quota. As I say, there's been a big anti-union campaign, which has been described as intimidatory. Mandatory meetings have been held. Employees have been told they'll lose benefits if they join the union. Misinformation has been sent out by text messages to workers' phones. And, you know, the owner of Amazon is just about the richest guy on the planet. It's just really, it's a really sorry, somber state of affairs. You can get a first-hand view on the campaign if you listen to a podcast produced by one of my stablemates at the Labour Radio Podcast Network. 
you need to search for Labour Radio Podcast Network weekly Wednesday live stream. Bit of a mouthful, so I'll repeat it. Labour Radio Podcast Network weekly Wednesday live stream. And it's the 17th of February edition. And that includes an interview with the lead organiser for the RWDSU. If you want to follow the campaign on Twitter, the Twitter handle is Union, And you can find all the links in the blog post that accompanies this podcast. And where is that? I know you know the answer. It's on the makesyouthink.com website. Elsewhere, we've got some, we've got some crazy goings on on the buses in London. 2,000 London bus drivers are in the middle of three days of strike action over pay. This shows just the lunacy of deregulation, in my view. The, the workers are employed by three different companies under the same corporate umbrella. So you've got workers at London United are on strike because management are proposing new contracts with wage cuts of over £2,500, which would reduce their pay to 2015 levels. You've got workers at Quality Line, who are based in southwest London, who are going on strike because they earn £2.50 an hour less than drivers at RATP. That's the parent company, RATP's other subsidiaries, and they've been offered a pay offer of seven pence an hour. Then you've got Unite members at London Sovereign, who operate services in northwest London, and they've been offered a pay rise of 0.75%. And it's not surprising that the Unite regional organiser for RATP, Michelle Braveboy, said, and I quote, RATP remains hell-bent on using the pandemic as a convenient smokescreen to attack key workers' terms and conditions. These are not temporary changes, but permanent ones that will see members suffer a substantial financial loss. There's also an ongoing dispute over zero-hours contracts, which hasn't been resolved. That's in London. In Manchester, hundreds of Go Northwest drivers who are Unite members are also poised to go on strike. This is over a fire and rehire arrangement. Now, the company say 85% of the staff have indicated they're going to accept the new contracts in order to keep the bus depots open. But the union have got an 82% vote for strike action. Well, I suppose my view would be just because you sign to say you'll accept a contract doesn't mean to say you like it or you approve of it or wouldn't want better. So I do see how this is not a contradiction, but actually something that, that makes sense given all the circumstances. The union are quite clear that the last thing they want to do is to inflict any inconvenience on the travelling public, especially key workers in the Northwest and in Manchester in, in, in particular. But at the same time, They've got to look after their members' terms and conditions. And I think if you looked at what people really want, the 82% is probably rather more solid than the 85%. And last, uh, for this section, uh, the return to school, everyone going back to school, as the Prime Minister has announced yesterday. Well, once again, the teaching unions have said, oh, hang on a minute, hang on a minute, not so fast, not so fast. In fact, nine organisations have said, let's do this on a phased basis. Let's send some year groups back, especially the examination year groups back, see how that goes, get teachers vaccinated, and then send the rest back. And I've got to say, well, the teaching unions haven't really put a foot wrong on this all the way through the pandemic. So let's hope that actually between now and the 8th of March, when students are starting to go back in England, there is some sense and some reassurance offered to all those in the school community, including, of course, parents of the kids who go to school. And the signatories to, to that joint letter really represent all the interest groups. It's the Association of School and College Leaders, the GMB, Head Teachers Union, NAHT, NASUWT, NEU, 
National Governance Association, which looks after school governors, Sixth Form Colleges Association, Unison and Unite. And my thanks to the Union News website for the heads up on the London buses story at the head of this section. Well, we're nearly out of time for this episode. Thank you so much for choosing to spend some of your valuable time with the Union Juice podcast. I hope you like what you've heard. hope it's made you think a little bit. If you have, or if you haven't, if you've got ideas for people we ought to have on the show, if you want to send us a story, if you want to tell us something that your union is doing at either branch, region, national level, we're all ears. We're all ears. You can contact the show by email, unionjews at makesyouthink.com. You can tweet us at jewsunion. The companion blog to this podcast is available on the makesyouthink.com website. Just go to makesyouthink.com and click on the blog section and you'll find all the links, all the signposting, all the background information you would need to enable you to follow up any of the issues we've discussed on the show. And if you get a chance, please, to rate us on the podcasting platform of your choice, that would be great. Very much appreciated. Union Jews is part of the Labour Radio Podcast Network, which is a collection of around 70 trade union and labour-related podcast shows. You can access them all through the Labour Radio Network portal, which is Labour Radio Network, or one word, .org. It's a real treasure trove of audio material about the labour movement. What could be better? What could be better in, indeed? So my thanks to Andrea, to Mel and to Josiah for their fantastic contributions as usual, to you for listening and hopefully rating and sharing as well. As we ease our way out of lockdown, stay safe, be kind. Let's keep on looking after each other. The light really is at the end of the tunnel and getting closer and brighter. And so until we meet again on the next edition of the Union Juice podcast, I'll be seeing you. Bye for now. The Union Jews podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.